I am unashamed. What about you? All right, so welcome back to Unashamed. Uh, Dan, you and I are just the two of us here in the Unashamed lair. Do you feel? Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't say jumping up and down excited, but <laughs> uh, yesterday. <laughs> hey, tell it like it is. Uh, but yesterday, I, I warmed up the uh, a group that had come from all over these United States. You and I were a one-two punch yesterday at WFL. And I, I was looking at you up there, Al, and you looked like an older gentleman up there. And I thought, <laughs> I thought, That's has 40, 50 years come by that quickly? It's happened quickly, Dad. Al, your whiskers yeah, are gray. Yeah. I mean, you... So Dad was the warm-up act. He did his class yesterday at WFR, the Unashamed Bible Study, which, by the way, we had a ton of visitors from all across the Fruited Plains yesterday. I met people from everywhere. I guess you did, too. And they come to, to your class because Dad does this Bible study every Sunday. And we invite people to come because he's just meeting people and, and sharing Jesus. And then they come over to the main assembly, and then I happened to be up preaching yesterday and so we kind of had our one-two punch yesterday. And so Jace is on the road. He's not here in his normal chair. So Jace is very quiet in here in our, on our set. But there, but there you are no. from an undisclosed location. It looks like you're in the the Bat Cave, some kind of a some kind of a lodge yeah. somewhere. I don't know. I wouldn't even venture a guess as to where you are. Very so suspect. It looks very suspect. It's very sketchy wherever he is. Can, can you can you speak, Jace? Can, can y'all you, hear me? We can, can hear you. Can you hear me? <laughs> okay. Well, I am actually are... in a log cabin out in the middle of the woods in a in a weird, just devious act. It's it's like an Airbnb. It's really nice, but it's right next to. Are you out of the country or in no, the country? I'm in the United States of America, but I'm right next to a historical park where this battle went, you know, happened. I don't even think whoever got us here knew that. And I'm like, there's a, there's a sign that we passed that said, absolutely no metal detecting. Ooh. And so uh, I'm like, I think that a- like... absolutely, absolutely is a key word there. <laughs> yeah. So we're just staying here and we, we filmed an episode last week and I'll, I I can't comment it, you know, because of legalities, but it was fantastic. It was probably the greatest uh, finds when it comes to treasure hunting that we've ever had. It was Ooh. it was fantastic. So we've all been levitating around. So then we had to drive to here, which is near our next location. We're going to do another episode this week, and so the bar's high. So that yeah, I don't know. I don't know who who picked this place. I love it. it it's literally out in the middle of nowhere. I'm shocked that you can hear me. So it's just to let the audience know. Anytime you got this much technology and everything going on, we we could. Very likely we'll lose Jace at some point, so we'll we'll just hope that he can stay in for us for the whole podcast. So we'll see what happens. And then Zach, of course, we got Zach, and of course we know he's like a mist 
he can come and go at, at any moment. So Zach, we're, we're so glad that the mist now is with us. You're like the fog. You've rolled in for the moment. So we're I'm glad here. to have you. I'm here. Yeah. I'm fully engaged, um, intentional. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to get into the Word. So. so at the beginning, Jay's of my sermon yesterday, which is funny because we're we're doing First and Second Peter at the church, but we you know because we do way more podcasts than we do sermons, you know, we always lag behind it at the church than we do. So I'm so at the yesterday I preached on First Peter three fifteen, always be prepared, which was quite a ways back on our podcast series. But you guys helped me on my preaching because you know we discussed a lot of really good stuff on those podcasts. So I had some good material for always being prepared. But at the beginning of our of my sermon, I talked about Jace that we do a Jace's word of the week which was kind of Alex, my daughter, youngest daughter's brainchild for our podcast because we're trying to add to Jace's vocabulary because, as we know, Zach likes to drop these big five, six, and seven-syllable words on us, which is not too intimidating you know, for Dad and I, but Jace tends to get a little bit intimidated by these big words because you know, he, he thinks that everything needs to be dumbed down a little bit. And so we're trying to expand his vocabulary. And so I dropped a word, Jason, in my sermon yesterday. And I know you're in the middle of nowhere, so you weren't able to see my sermon. And so I used it in its natural thing, but I thought it was a pretty good word. So I want to see if you've heard of the word before. And so this is just, I tied this into our Jason's word of the week, because since I used it yesterday in my sermon, the word is serendipity. I've heard the, I've heard the word. But let me just say, because you're you're making a lot of accusations that I believe are unfounded. <laughs> I'm not intimidated by not. Zach's vocabulary. In fact, no, I, I think I think Big Brother nailed it. No, and I want to reiterate for all the people who follow Jesus who listen to this, which I'm pretty sure it's a lot of people. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom. Now, I don't know what words of human wisdom. I don't know exactly that group of words and phraseology he was referring to. But I know this. Mm -hmm. When you do that, you empty the cross of Christ of its power. So therefore, when I single out these words, I'm actually given a form of chastisement, not to make this more difficult to understand than it should be. <laughs> Having said that, now you can explain to me the meaning of the word serendipity, because my I think there was a movie about that. Yeah, there was a movie called Serendipity. Oh, is that right? Alex actually knew well, the movie. I didn't movie. see the movie. So the, the definition of serendipity is uh, the occurrence and development uh, of events in a happy or beneficial way. So it's it's kind of an unexpected thing that turns out well. And so I was telling the story that when Lisa and I were heading to Indiana for an event, this couple, well, it was a, actually a, a, a father and a daughter, uh, and they had a support dog with them as well. They came into the airport, and they were wearing one of our One Kingdom t-shirts, the dad was. And they came in, and they knew us, but I didn't know them. 
And so they came in, hey, I'm Lisa. And they started talking. And I was like, hey, who are you guys? You know, I didn't know who they were. And they were they started telling us that they were from Idaho and they had just spent a week in West Monroe on their on their vacation from their work, basically just spending it with people at our church because you know they're a part of the live stream church family. And so that's, you know, they're very engaged and involved. And I said, well, that's, that's amazing, you know? And so they knew us, but we didn't know them. But I was saying that that was a serendipity because we didn't expect to run into them at the airport, but we did. It was a fortuitous blessing. So when they used it in a sentence, Jace, it was kind of interesting because their example was, it's like digging a hole in your backyard to bury your hamster and finding a treasure chest of jewels. So that the dictionary I read, that was their example of a serendipity. And I thought that that would apply to you. If that's you were, good. Yeah. Well, let, let me, uh, yeah, I think before we move forward, yeah, do you guys mind if I give a little more context to Jace's scripture that he read? Uh-oh, we've got a rebuttal. Because yeah, there, is, there is another part to it that, he, <laughs> that, that you left off, Jace. It's the, it's the verse six. Yeah. I don't mind, but then I will give a follow-up to my comment. <laughs> of your dissertation because i already know what you're gonna say it's called spiritual discernment but go ahead i'm just gonna read the rest of the scripture it says uh oh you're gonna provide context okay yeah context matters you know yet we do speak wisdom among the mature a wisdom however not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away but we speak god's wisdom and listen to how he speaks it in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom to which none of the rulers of this age had understood. Um, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And uh, then he, he, he has an Old Testament quote in there. So there, it's not that, uh, you know, Paul certainly spoke wisdom. He just didn't speak with man's wisdom. And I think that Jace may have been cut out. And I don't know if that was, I mean, the only thing I can say is the Holy Spirit cutting him out because he didn't want him to rebuttal. I don't know. <laughs> Days, are you still uh, there? <laughs> no, I don't think I've been cut out. I'm here. I hear you. Uh, valid, <laughs> valid points. So let me, my response is in Acts 4.12, there's a profound statement in the Bible that is awesome. And this is a sermon that from the same fella that we're discussing his letter here. And this statement says in 412, mm-hmm. salvation is Acts found four, in what, no what one else. The, uh, what was the scripture again? Acts 412. Acts 412. Acts 412. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And you say, why am I bringing this up? Because the serendipity of the crowd happened. Because the next verse says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished or they were serendipitous. See what I did there, Al? (laughs) That's a good use of the word. And why were they astonished? They were astonished because they were unschooled, ordinary men, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. My point is, you're introducing Jesus to the world. So if you want to use words, great. 
But as far as his letters are concerned over there, the last time we heard about Peter, when you're reading through the Gospels, was when Peter's to Jesus challenged him on where his love was. Do you love me? I mean, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, oh, you, you know I love you. So it's a question about did he love Jesus? What's amazing about it is I don't know how long exactly it was before the final words John recorded about whether Peter loved Jesus or not. But you, you, you went to Acts 4. I'm saying the first thing, you turn one page from John chapter 21 on whether Peter loved Jesus or not. And they had the little row about the, uh, picking another uh, uh, man to work with them because Ju Judas was gone. He, he went down the cliff. But what's amazing is the opening words from Peter's mouth. After all we saw back and forth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Peter's opening line, it's a quotation from Joel, and he starts out by saying, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. He's on board now, 100% Peter is, which God did among you through him as you yourself know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Y'all thinking you pulled off some stunt when you killed him. See, I added that. And you, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by the first thing out of his mouth. God raised him from the dead. It's impossible. He simply, you can take the whole Bible and just zero in on that right there. What did Peter have to say having run with Jesus for three years and all the problems he had? And I don't know whether we, you know, I, I, you know, you're not going to die. Well, that's the first thing out of his mouth on what did what he did do. He did die and was buried and raised from the dead. And also, I would just like to, for the sake of it, they said, what do we do? Which is a great question. A bunch of people hear somebody pontificating, unschooled, ordinary men, like you said in 412. He said, they, and he get up there. So he goes down there and right off the bat, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this genius whom you crucified. Boy, I mean, he had chewed them out. When they heard it, the people, all them people from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that you read about, when they heard it, they were cut to the heart. And the question of all questions, biblically speaking anyway, is what shall we do about Jesus dying for us, being buried and raised from the dead? What do we do? First thing out of their mouth going in the book of Acts, and Peter is the one that's got the reins. He said, told them, repent. Sounds like it, they need to have a change of heart. And be baptized. Oh, you don't have to do that. The, the word right now in our culture is, ah, you don't have to do it. A lot of them, you don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. You don't have to fool with that. What do we do about just hearing that we killed the Son of God and he'll live forever? What do we do, Peter? Repent and be baptized, everyone in the name of Jesus. And you, the promise is for you and your children, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the whole thing about Christianity in about five minutes. That's, and all this unnecessary wordage 
that people come out of and write about and all these things? Why don't they just read the, what happened right there when the kingdom of God started and Peter's got the floor and he's had some issues before, but he now sees the light, preaches the gospel, and then the response, and people are going around saying, I don't know whether you need to be baptized or not. If you don't know whether you need to be baptized or not, are you crazy? <laughs> I think that's out of serendipitous. I think he's out of serendipitous. I didn't have to use any big words to say that. None. So most of uh, the appearances, Dad, that uh, Lisa and I have been doing lately have been about uh, about for the pro-life movement, which is most of ours. And the last one I think you've done as well have been uh, in this uh, in this area. And this has been very important uh, to our family. It's just an important time, I think, in our culture, just because, you know, a lot's happened. You know, Roe v. Wade has been overturned, and um, which basically has pushed it back to the states to make a decision on in-state legislatures about this issue of life. And so, but there's a lot of national organizations that are out there working. And one of those has been a group that uh, we've been associated with for a while, and it's called 40 Days for Life. And so this particular group, which has uh, been a supporter of our podcast for a while, we've had Sean Carney on our podcast before. In fact, I think he's coming up uh, next month on our podcast again. We're excited to hear what's uh, going on uh, in their ministry. They have about a million volunteers in about 1,500 cities. They're the largest pro-life organization in the world, uh, and um, really they're in the best position uh, to uh, to end abortion in a post-Royal America. So that's why we love these guys. They uh, hold 40-day peace vigils uh, in different cities. Um, they've helped convert a, about 247 abortion workers, which makes a big difference. And so uh, we're very supportive of what they're doing. We encourage you guys to check out what they're doing, check out their locations. They're, they have a podcast. They also have a free magazine. If you go to their website, it's 40daysforlife.com. You can stay updated on what they're doing uh, about abortion uh, and hopefully to end abortion in a post-Roe America. So that's 4040daysforlife.com. Check them out and see how you can get plugged in. There's nothing wrong with using big words. I'm just representing the side of unschooled and ordinary, and I'm perfectly fine. I'm an ordinary fella, and I'm unschooled. I mean, the only reason I made it through school is because I had my brother there. The unschooled and ordinary was this bunch that Peter's talking to, in my opinion. Well, there you go. Yeah, but the Apostle Paul wasn't unschooled, and you know he was a he he wrote a, the majority of the New Testament. So I think it's both. I mean, I think there's people like Peter, there's people like Paul. That's the good thing about God's kingdom; it's, it is diverse. But if you want a starting point, if you want a starting point, where it's a good place to go to kick the thing off, the kingdom of God has come. People are speaking their language and all. There's a big happening here. And in the midst of it all, Peter preaches the gospel and the response. It just looks like yeah. to me, anybody who was, was study the Bible would at least bring that up first before they get into eschatology. <laughs> yeah, well, I know. I know. <laughs> no, that's a good point, Phil. Look, I mean, I'm going Noah Webster. Education is useless without the Bible. That's it. Yeah, but I think. I think the key marker for for the, the verse you read, Jace, I do think there's something beautiful in there that uh, is 
the, the, no matter if you're, if you're schooled, if you're educated, you know, like, like a Paul was very educated in the ways of Judaism. Um, or if you're Peter and you're unschooled and you're just a fisherman, um, no matter where you kind of come from, whatever background you come from, I think the marker when you present the gospel to people, when you present Christ to people is that what what set them apart here in verse 13 is that they observed that they, they observed the confidence of Peter. So uh, Peter and John. So they had confidence in this setting and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and began to recognize them. And this is the part I love as having been with Jesus. You bet. And I think that's important because that's my point. Yeah. But, 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 it, but there's people like there's different, uh, the I think the gospel hits us in different ways and different, different people access it in different ways. And so the good thing about God's kingdom is there's not one like, Oh, you have to do it this way. Uh, you know, you have to do it this way or that way. And, and, and cause sometimes you get intimidated by that and you think, well, I don't have all the language or I don't have the theological training and theological training is not a bad thing. But it's a bad thing if it becomes more important than having been with Jesus. Like what matters is to have you spent time with Jesus and your confidence in your presentation doesn't flow from your knowledge of what you've done or what you know. It flows from what Jesus has done in you. And that is that is contagious with people, you know, um, just sharing sharing your own story, sharing what Christ has done for you. But I do think that these guys are is a little different here because they were under inspiration of the spirit. Um, part of the, the what was so shocking here is that they were ordinary men, but yet they're going up against the religious elites and they're holding their own, not just holding their own. They're decimating their arguments and they're, they're almost, they're embarrassing these people who had been trained because they're like, wait, how do how are you presenting this with such confidence and power and conviction? And you, you, you didn't go through the proper training courses. And I think that's what was so shocking about this. It wasn't that they I mean, they were speaking deep truths. Zach, I made the point yesterday in my sermon on the First Peter three fifteen, which we talked about when we were in First Peter, that when he said, "Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have," a lot of times what we do in the modern times is we say, "Well, let me get get you to a scholar, to the pastor." to my Sunday school teacher, to my sponsor, to my wife, who's, you know, who's more spiritual than me. I mean, in other words, it's always like, let me get you to somebody who knows the formula better than me. But that's not what he said. He said, let me, you know, he said to, for the hope that you have. And so every single one of us should be carrying around in us the hope that we have of the story of Jesus. So I guarantee, you. I mean, th- therefore that's in us. And so that, I mean, it's a, Peter makes a personal challenge to each and every one of us, no matter wh- how far you are along in your faith. If you're a, a Christian, you should hold within you hope of why you're a Christian. I mean, that's kind of the point. So, you know, whether you're brand spanking new or you're, you know, you've been walking in the faith for 20 or 30 or 40 years, each one of us, holds that faith. And so it's not a question of how smart you are or how mature you are even. I mean, all of us know different things along the level. So I made the point of that. It was interesting because one of our elders closed out our service and he looked directly at me and he said, you challenged me today because I'm one of those kind of guys that wants to get people to somebody else. But he said, you know, I need to be thinking about my hope. And I said, well, that's good. 
I mean, well, it goes into the whole Peter's whole thing about the, that we are a priest. We are a priesthood of believers, and I think that's. And I think going back to the uh, last book that Peter wrote that we went through, and he talks about elders and how you know that there's the chief elders, Jesus, and then the, and then you know all the other elders, and the, but the whole thing, and you read it, it's like you kind of get this idea that Peter's saying, don't outsource your you know your ministry to profession professionals yeah. not to say that it's okay to be paid and that's good and right and but but like i can't say okay pastor you take my ministry or pastor the great commission is for you to fulfill but not for me i don't i don't participate in the fulfillment of the great commission it's no you you do participate in it we all participate in it and it'll change over time you know like what what is meaningful to you i, I was telling someone the other day about camp chioka which uh, my parents met there um al I was just telling this story this week when someone was asking me about my testimony and I said, well, really, I, I didn't grow up in a, a strong crew. I did with my parents, but the school that I went to, none of my friends were Christians. Um, you know, it was, it was a pretty, um, pretty wild crowd. And then going into out of my 11th grade year, I, I was at the beach with you guys. I don't know if you remember this, Al, and me and you were sitting on the beach and you just started asking me questions which led into questions about my faith. And I kind of share with you where I was at and was, which was in a dark place. And, and you invited me to camp Chioka and, and I hadn't been in years since I was a little kid. And I was like, you know, and I, I want to try that. So I came and just had like the most incredible experience there that, I mean, we were crying. It was camp high, you know, yep. it was a camp high and it was superficial, but for a 16, 17-year-old guy, it's exactly what I needed in that moment. Yeah. And it was superficial, and I've grown uh, deeper in my faith. But I can't look back on my life and think, man, that wasn't – that that was all. That wasn't real. No, it was real at the time. And, yeah, it was superficial, but it was real, and it was meaningful. And the way that I presented the gospel to people in that moment in my life is not how I do it now. But it was – but that, back then I'm talking with other 17 – year old kids and that's right. and it was effective and so um you know i think that's the thing that your walk will mature and so will your presentation of the gospel but you don't wait you do it now where you're at now because the power's not in you anyways it's in it's in christ who is in you yeah and that's a great point that in every season that you're in you, you, something matters in that season and in that's a great description of that whether it be a camp or some other situation there's something that god provides in that moment I think that's that's a good lead in to get us back into Second Peter because now we're into this his second letter, which is as we've described is a, is much more pointed and I think much more direct because as we've described it, he's at the end of his life, and I think he's you know he he's kind of given this kind of this is the end of my you know story. So he's trying to be much more direct in how he's doing it. And so we talked in the first chapter, he had kind of this maturing to productivity and effectiveness and this kingdom assurance message in the in the first part of the, the letter. And then he gets to this in the second chapter, which is, is where we left off, and he brings us this idea about these false teachers that are there. And we talked to, you know, we surmised a little bit about maybe what they were into because he doesn't exactly say. 
some of it could have been Gnosticism, which we kind of talked about a little bit last time. But one thing's for sure in those first three verses, they were denying Christ, they were disrespecting truth, and then they were they were exploiting people for their own self-gratification. And he mentioned that specifically that was going on in his context, but we talked about and expanded that, that pretty much when you find false teachers, that's universal. I mean, you see yeah. that even to this very day, right? I mean, that's what they're going to be doing. They're going to be taking advantage of people for their own selfish reasons. I think it's interesting where we have this unschooled ordinary man now writing this this second letter, and even the scholars and theologians think, well, this just can't be Peter because of the of the uh, nature of it. But, you know, my point was Jesus makes you smart, but he also makes you feel comfortable in your weaknesses and limitations. You know, I'm not the, I don't have a great vocabulary and we make fun of that. Uh, also don't look like I'm very smart, but, and we all make mistakes, but I'm saying there's some, there's a piece in Jesus that I think, the point I was after is where you don't have to look a certain way. You know, in our culture, in our world, people want to have the illusion that we've made it. You know, we have this nice house and a manicured yard and we have a, you know, a boat under the, under the garage and, and everybody's wearing nice clothes. And a lot of times there's, when you, you go in and see, what's really happening in their lives. You know, it's, it's chaos. What I find inspiring about what Peter did here is yes, he spent the whole first chapter saying this is the truth and it's validated. We were eyewitnesses. You know, these are, this is based on God's power and his promises. You have everything you need. You can escape these evil desires that come up in your heart and you can have this growing faith and these qualities well, then you get to the second chapter and he's like, but you're going to have opposition because people don't want to live the life that God has called them to live. When, when you really see all this, it's really we're going to talk about their heresies, but it was all an excuse for them to live how they wanted to do. And uh, it's the same thing happens in our culture when people start arguing about Jesus and it always comes back to. They want to just live however they want to. And then I think to Peter's credit, he gets to chapter three and it gets downright scary because then he he pulls the, oh, we're all going to stand before God. What then? There's there's going to be a destructive way this world ends and there's going to be a constructive if you're on the right side of God. I mean, it's a very scary picture of what happens to those who have denied Jesus and it's an even more scary picture in chapter three about us standing before God and dealing with the consequences of turning your back on the truth. It's it's interesting that how Peter's progression here, uh, the there because there is I think there's a there is a very logical progression to the heresy and the false teaching that was going on, particularly in what he's addressing here in Second Peter, and the, and the first thing is is a is that you reject the authority of scripture uh, that's the first move uh, verses 19 20 and 21 of chapter one it's it's the first thing you do is you start to question 
the authority of the scripture. What is this really God breathed? Is it inspired? Uh, what are there are there errors in this? Did Paul have a cultural bias? Was Paul biased? It was Paul inspired. I mean, these are the conversations that you start having these conversations. Then you start to interpret the scripture through some kind of cultural lens. And there are cultural applications of the of the of the eternal truths in here. But but when you diminish the authority of scripture, then the next thing is, is you diminish the deity or the sovereignty or, or, or the or, or the supremacy of Christ. And that's what they did here. They denied the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And then, and then the next move is that's when the heresies come in. That's well, this is her- heretical before that. That's when all the sensuality comes in. And so then it, you start moving into lots of sensuality, uh, lots of, I mean, the whole, and then it gets back to the same thing the world struggles with, right? Like sex <laughs> and then, and it becomes a free for all. And so I just think it's interesting how, how at the top of that, uh, of this chain is, is the authority of God, authority of God at the head of all of this, who reveals through the scriptures to humans. And then we say, nah, God didn't do that. And then once we say that, then we have no leg to stand on when we start, you know, really thinking about who Christ was. And so then we deny Jesus and then we start to deny Jesus. Then we move into worship of ourselves, which typically is the sensuality stuff. That's why he says in verse two of chapter two, many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you. So then there's also the greed component as well with false words that uh, in the judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So enter in basically self selfishness and, and, and a consumptive nature. It's easy to see why, because once you've removed truth and you've removed lordship and you put yourself in that position, then you say, well, I'm above all that. And so then I can do whatever I want to. And that's what you begin to see. That's why they take advantage. That's why they yeah. indulge in their own sensuality and they take advantage of these people because we're going to see later they take advantage of the weak will people that they're supposed to be serving and leading and then they do what they want to. And instead of leading them to something better as the Lord would do, they instead debase them and lead them to someplace worse. And so that's what happens with these false teachers and these false leaders. And you see it happen every day. It's still to this day. And so they destroy in this destructive behavior that you see. And and that's where he's going to get into this next context is that God's always had a way of dealing with this. And he's going to start providing some context. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, Zach's right. We're on the same page here. But, you know, he threw in that chapter 2 and verse 1 when he said, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought who bought them. And so, yes, it's, it's an introduction to get to this sensuality and do all these things that are ungodly. And it's, it's a denial of Jesus that he's claiming to be an eyewitness of. And he gave the validation for it. Cause then when he gets to chapter two and verse 13, he really paints the picture of why they're denying Jesus because it says they will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done, which he's going to get into that in chapter three. But 
Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. Which was my point. If you remove God as a reality, if, if how you view Jesus dictates on how you live your life. There's a connection here. Yeah, because so, you end up becoming... You're on God. Exactly. That that's the point I'm trying to make is they didn't they didn't just take a look at from a a reasonable or rational way at what the Lord has done. They're they have a lifestyle that they're not willing to give up. Therefore, when they look at what the Lord offers, well they attack it and they come up with ways around it. Because the bottom line is they don't they don't want to change their life. Which is why when he gets to Second Peter 3, that's not scary to people who have been repentant. Because basically, that's who, that's who are in the group of people that are rewarded in, in the home of righteousness. Because you remember the, the passage where he's going to say in chapter 3 that uh, where it says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise this is 3 9 as some understand slowness he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance so that that's the problem with the heretics we we tend to put them in a camp like what's wrong with these people well they don't want to repent and the reason they're not open-minded to what the lord has done is because they want to do what they want to see, do. See, I understand even the psychology of it. They think in their minds they're above it. Just think about it. If you've deconstructed the lordship of Jesus and the authority of truth, well, of course, you're above this. In other words, you're where God is. So, of course, yeah. if there's just these women here and they're here to serve you, well, of course, they're just an object to serve whatever desire you have. So they put themselves in this position of godlike authority. And so that serves whatever base-like desires they have. They don't realize that by putting themselves in this authority, they're not God, though. That's the difference. They don't love this person as God loves them. They're, to, they're totally doing this on a, on a human desire level. And that's what they don't understand. They become these beasts that, that is being described here. And so I, I get it from a psychology level. They have put themselves in a position they have no desire to be. And that's why they become this person. Well, think about the language here that he uses about uh, they denied the master who bought them. And, and I, I think about, I mean, I've said this on a mini podcast before. I'll say it again. Bob Dylan said, you got, you have to serve somebody. You got to serve somebody. And so the idea that we're going to be free autonomous creatures is just, it's not, it's not a possibility for us. And we think it is, but it's not either. You're going to be a slave to sin or you're going to be a slave to righteousness. Either you're going to be a, 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 under the mastery of the devil, or you're going to be under the mastery of, of Christ. And Christ is our master. So I think when they deny the master, this, I, and, and by the way, I mean, this is kind of interesting language here. He says these people were bought by the master, which tells us that I think it tells us that these people were in the church. I mean, these weren't like, yeah. you know, people from the outside. These were people that were paid for by the master. Yep. And I, and, and, uh, and they were doing this, which has other implications we could talk about later. But 
but they're denying the, they're denying the, the, the lordship of Christ, and they're saying, I, I, I'm not going to be under your control or your guidance. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be my own master, which really, when you're your own master, you just become a slave to sensuality and greed. I mean, that, that's where it ends up because, and I think that he gets into this too, when you're a creature, there's just limitations on being a creature. One of the limitations on being a creature is that you're not a creator. You're not the creator. You just, we can't exist outside of our temporal spatial world. I can't, I can't be in two places at one time. No matter how hard I try, I can't. I can't stop time from taking its toll on me. And, and with every minute that passes, I'm, I'm, I'm an inch closer to death. I'm a minute closer to death. Like I can't. So, but what's happened is when you when you leave the mastery of Jesus and you say I'm going to be my own master, then you're essentially banging your head up against the wall of your existence and you're trying to get out of there. You're trying to say I want to be God. The problem is, is that you're not God, and but so you end up with frustration. And I think that's the progression here that you see is eventually what you'll do is you'll give up trying to be God, and then you'll just go down and and you'll descend with the animals. And you'll be like unreasoning animals, yep. you know. You'll, uh, th- and that's where this kind of ends up. So when you see like someone who's just completely given over to sensuality and like with no no boundaries, no, I mean like n- no n- no guardrails, and like we're just going to go at it, for whatever we can get. And so what does it look like? Well, it looks like Mother Nature on steroids. I mean, just the you know Mother Nature can be brutal, you know, and it looks like that. It looks like that world. It's like I'm just going to be a, a creature of instinct, but the problem is, is that you can't purely be a creature of instinct because you do possess rational faculties. You are made in the image of God, even 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 in your sin, you still bear these image making properties of God. And so, what we do as humans, the Bible says, that we invent ways of doing evil. So then we use our God given rational faculties to intensify our animal instinct, instinctual desires. And that's where you get all the crazy stuff that you see today. You're like, man, where's all that come from? It's humans using their God-given ability to reason, to invent ways of doing evil, to descend further into the animal kingdom. And it's like, man, what a reversal, you know, of, of what sin can do to us. And so what he does in verses four through nine is he's going to give three examples of showing that God knows how to deal with this situation before he gets into painting the picture that we've kind of already jumped ahead and looked at. And he gives three examples of just what you just described, Zach. And the first one is in heaven itself. And this is one that we only get like some glimpses of. And and I wrote down four or five different verses where we get these little glimpses of it. And one of them is right here. It says, "For God, if God did not spare angels when they sin, but sent them to hell, um, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment." So the first one is whatever happened before us. Something happened in heaven, and we know from you read about it in Revelation twelve. Uh, there's an allusion to it in Jude six. Jesus refers to it in Matthew twenty five forty one, and then there's little glimpses you can tell in in Job one and Job four eighteen that something happened 
in heaven. And we know as a result of that, Satan is a result because he was part of that fallen angel group. And there was some sort of rebellion in heaven. And we get this glimpse that whatever it was is kind of what Zach was describing about this idea of turning against God. And so that's the first example that he gives. And we don't know much about it other than it happened. But he's going to paint the same picture with the flood in verse 5. And we do know quite a bit about that from reading in Genesis 5 and 6 and what happens later with Noah. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, and we know what happened there, every human being that was present on earth, except for one man and his family, right, was just wicked and violent, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, just his family. So there's another example of what you were describing, Zach, just total depravity. Every thought, wickedness, base animal instinct all the time, except for one guy and his family. That's where we had gotten, and it didn't take long to get there. So there's another example. So he's, he's just giving you these examples of what it looks like. Then he gives you another one. If he condemned the city, so here's a localized situation of Sodom and Gomorrah. You read about that in Genesis 19. By burning them to ashes, it made them an example of what is going on to happen to the ungodly. So here you have same situation. You got one guy, if he rescued Lot, a righteous man. So you got one guy in the midst of this entire city, twin cities, of just constant evil, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials, and this is his point, and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. So there's that. the point he's making is that God knows how to separate and look at righteous versus unrighteous. And I think that's his, his point that he's trying to make. He uses three different examples to do that by looking at what happened in heaven. There were angels who still believed and followed God versus those that didn't. In the case of Noah, there was Noah and his family versus all those other ones. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, there was Lot, and then there was all the rest of them. And what he's saying is, is look, God knows the difference between those who are trying to do the right thing versus a vast majority who aren't. And he, and he, and he, gives, a, and he gives a description at the end here. like a, He almost doubles down on this dichotomy of what you're talking about. He says, especially those, and here's the two sides of the, of the dichotomy, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. So that's one group, right? Like that, that's one way you could go. I'm going to indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. By the way, I told a, a, a young guy that was dating my daughter, the first boyfriend she had when she was about 16, I said, do you know the, do you know the best time of year? to kill a buck, to kill a deer, a male deer. And he, and he was, he said, no, I said, when they're in the rut. <laughs> and and my point was like, watch, watch yourself. You know, it's it, that it's when you're in that mindset, that's when, that's when a deer is most likely to get killed because he's not thinking clearly. He's just following. But think about if that was you all the time, 
You know what I mean? I think that's what he's talking about here. And then, and then the other side of that dichotomy uh, is, is uh, they despise authority. So they, I think that when you think about this idea of authority, because we want, we like no one's going to be controlling me. Nobody, nobody's going to tell me what to do. Yeah, that that that's a that's kind of an American way, right? I'm not going to be under anybody's authority. I'm not mm-hmm. going to. I'm going to do what I want to do. It's a Western Western way of thinking. But man, when you talk about like like that, that is one way of thinking about the the world, and you can go after it, or you can submit yourself on the other side of this dichotomy to the authority of Christ, who who is powerful. He's more powerful than you more powerful than you can ever imagine any of us. So on a pragmatic level, we should just do it just because we don't have a chance against this guy. And then two, and maybe more importantly, is he is good and he wants what's best for you. And he, he has planned for you is better. And we, when we submit to the authority of Christ, you know what the end result of that is? Life and life abundantly. When we deny the authority of Christ, the end result of that is death, isolation, misery, and hell. And I think that there that's why there's a thread of grace and hope that runs through this entire warning, as you just mentioned there. There's that thread of hope, and there's that thread of grace throughout all of this that we can be rescued from that way of thinking. No, that's a great point. And, and it shows you how pervasive— and bad times can be, but you're right. There's also, there's always that idea that God still knows who has the heart for him, which is Peter's point. He he understands, he's always been able to understand. You think about all those different parables that Jesus taught about whenever the Satan comes to sow in, you know, what's bad among that, which is good. Whenever it comes up, God always knows the good from the bad. And so that's his point he yeah. keeps making. You know, there's God knows you don't have to because, you know, we get to worry and say, oh, it's just all bad. How would God ever know? How would he be able to separate it out? I was like, no, he understands from even before time began, he understands good from evil. He understands false from true and yeah. and real from what's not real. He, he he gets it. He understands it. And you have to trust him to do that cuz it's hard for us sometimes to understand that from our perspective. Even in the 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 midst of all of this horrible stuff and there's and there's hope, there's a thread of hope through there. I find it interesting that he says that that um Lot who was in the midst of all this, he says that he was tormented in his righteous soul. And yeah. I think there's an element of that. You said, um, who, he says, tormented in his righteous soul day after day by their lawless deeds. And I think there is something like you, if you're out there and you're thinking, man, I, I just look at, I weep for our culture. I weep for, I weep, I just weep for, for that. I'm tormented. I think that's a, I think that's kind of a byproduct of, of being a righteous person is that you look around the, uh, around you and, 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 it, and it hurts. It should hurt us to see, the world and that kind of calamity. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I want to, yeah, I want to flesh that out a little bit more in our overtime because there's a lot to be said about that. That's, that's pretty rich because we're out of time, um, for, for this, uh, podcast, but there's a, there's a quite a bit more to be said about that. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that before we get into the rest of this, uh, description of these false prophets. Uh, if you want to follow us over blaze tv.com slash unashamed, Uh, to hear more about this in our overtime. Thanks for listening to the Unashamed Podcast. Help us out by rating us on iTunes. 
And don't miss an episode by subscribing on YouTube and be sure to click that little bell to get notified about new episodes. And for even more content that you won't get anywhere else, subscribe to Blaze TV at blazetv.com slash unashamed.